Mark chapter 12, beginning in verse 35. While Jesus was teaching in the temple, he said, How can the scribes say that the Messiah is the son of David? David himself, by the Holy Spirit, declared, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. David himself calls him Lord, so how can he be his son? And the large crowd was listening to him with delight. Something happens in this text that helps us to understand how Jesus read the Bible. And so we're going to read with Jesus today. From Dallas Willard's The Divine Conspiracy, he says, To become a disciple of Jesus, we must simply accept that he is the best and smartest man who ever lived in this world. That he is even now the prince of the kings of the earth, a reference to Revelation 1.5. Then we heartily join his cosmic conspiracy to overcome evil with good. To become a disciple of Jesus, we must simply accept that he is the best and smartest man who ever lived. Essential to following Jesus, it seems to me, is the assumption that no one read or interpreted the prophets of Israel with greater proficiency. Now, there's, there can be this idea, because we have 66 books in this Bible, and it's all bound nicely in one binding, and it's all written in English, often by the same committee or author, so it, or, or translator, so it looks very, very seamless. But I want to kind of dispel the myth that what we have here is basically God coming to 66 individuals and dictating to them exactly what he wanted them to say, and they just were listening to him and writing down everything he said as fast as they could, and that God did that 66 times, and so you have 66 books, and this is what the Word of God is. We have sort of demonstrated that the Bible is more complicated than that. In fact, its development for Old and New Testament starts in somewhere, according to the Bible itself, around 1446 B.C. with Moses. And it gets worked on and worked on and worked on over the course of over almost 2,000 years, almost 1,500 years, from 1446 B.C., and it ends in about the 90s A.D., when the last book of the New Testament is written. That's the scope. And most of these books are not written by one person, though certainly you do have books that are, like Romans was written by Paul and First Timothy is written by Paul and things like that. But books like Deuteronomy, we know Moses wrote it, but it also talks about things that happened after Moses died, so somebody else's hands are in there. We get place names in the book of Genesis that didn't, weren't called that during the days of Genesis, so somebody edited the names later so people would know where they were talking about, all kinds of stuff like that. So the Bible is less a collection of inspired authors' works, and more the compendium of an inspired people. The nation of Israel. So how are we to read it? That's the question. Essentially in this passage, Jesus was questioning the commonly held Jewish belief that the Messiah, the coming king, the one who would deliver them from the Romans and set up a kingdom of God on earth with Israel as the capital and all the other nations as subservient nations to the people of Israel. That king, who they were waiting for, they commonly believed would simply be a human descendant of David. That's what they believed. Jesus suggested in this passage that David's own words about that successor 
indicate that the Messiah would be an authority over David himself, which according to Jewish tradition means he couldn't be simply a descendant of David. Because no father calls his son Lord in Jewish tradition. So Jesus then says, if David can call this future king Lord, then he has to be greater than David. And it's important in the Gospel of Mark. In many ways, this passage helps to explain the evidences of Jesus' divinity that we've seen in Mark. We've been talking about it through the whole series. Jesus does things that no human can do, that only God can do in this book. And so this passage helps to explain exactly the Messiah is to be greater than David, maybe even greater than we thought he was supposed to be. It also helps to prepare us for Jesus' resurrection from the dead. Because when he rises from the dead, it's painfully apparent to his disciples that he is not simply a son of David. So that's the passage. But what we're interested in today is how Jesus read this psalm to come to that conclusion. What assumptions has Jesus made about what we call the Old or the First Testament that leads him to interpret it in this way? My hope is that by reading alongside of Jesus, we might come to better understand the process of reading and interpreting the Bible today. That's my hope. And so we'll look at three fundamental assumptions of Jesus, if we have time to get to them, which support his interpretation of Psalm 110. David will be the first subject of discussion, Messiah, second, and Holy Spirit, third. But before we get to that, I'm going to read Psalm 110 simply so that uh, we can recognize what it was Jesus was interpreting. Psalm 110. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. The Lord sends out from Zion your mighty scepter. Rule in the midst of your foes. Your people will offer themselves willingly on the day you lead your forces on the holy mountains. From the womb of the morning, like dew, your youth will come to you. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. The Lord is at your right hand. He will shatter kings on the day of his wrath. He will execute judgment among the nations, filling them with corpses. He will shatter heads over the wide earth. He will drink from the stream by the path. Therefore, he will lift up his head. So I want to start with this phrase, David. How did Jesus know David wrote this psalm? Do you notice that the little phrase of David, is it this way in your Bible? In mine, it, it doesn't even get a verse. There's no verse number in front of it. It's just a tiny little italicized thing, right? Of David, a psalm. And, and David himself, Jesus says, David himself by the Holy Spirit declared. How does he know David wrote it? Well, the association of this psalm with David is not even given a verse in our English translations, as you can tell. Now, it is present in the original text of the Hebrew that we've translated from. But there are many theologians and scholars today that don't think David wrote any of the psalms that are associated with him. And they have their various reasons for that. If you're interested in, in the text criticism and all that, we can talk about that another time. I don't want to bore you with it. But there are a lot of people who think there's good evidence to believe David didn't write these. That, that the Israelite people just put his name on them because it was David or because they thought the psalm had something to do with an aspect of his life or something like that. The truth, as far as I can tell, to cut through all that and just give you kind of the summary, is that the only real evidence that we have that Psalm 110 was written by David is in the text itself. That's the only place we have any evidence. In other words, we only have the words of the prophets. Now, why do I say it that way? Because according to Jewish tradition, it was the prophets who 
brought together, wrote, edited, arranged, and put, brought together what we call the Old Testament. The First Testament, the first 39 books. And so we have nobody's word except the prophets that David wrote this thing. Why does that matter? If David didn't write this psalm, Jesus' whole argument sort of falls apart. It's essential. Davidic authorship is essential. And we have nobody's word that David wrote this thing except the prophets. So what does that mean for us when we read the Bible? If we have to assume that David wrote this psalm according to Jesus in order to read and interpret it correctly, then for Jesus there was something inspired about the prophetic tradition of Israel itself. Their tradition that said David wrote it was authoritative for Jesus. Whether or not it can ever be validated through text criticism and the other things people try to do. So in other words, who the prophets of Israel said wrote the psalm, we have to assume wrote it if we have any chance of reading it appropriately. There's no room in Jesus' reading of the psalm for doubt in Israel's claims with respect to who wrote the psalm. So what does that imply about the existence of other figures people are uncomfortable with? What about Abraham? What about the story of the flood? Or the story of the exodus from Egypt? If we can't validate that archaeologically, or if we can't find enough historical evidence to prove it happened, how do we approach it? Well, again, for Jesus, if Israel says it, we must assume it in order to read this text. There is no interpreting out of the question, what if it didn't happen? So the detail of David's authorship of Psalm 110 implies that to follow Jesus in his reading of the Psalms, we have to assume the truthfulness of the claims of the prophets of Israel. What we call the First Testament, or the Old Testament. We have to assume them to be truthful. So if we're going to read with Jesus, there's really no room for the question, did David really write this? The second is this phrase, Messiah. This is even more dodgy, but it's helpful. Verse 35 of chapter 12 of Mark. While Jesus was teaching in the temple, he said, How can the scribes say that the Messiah is the son of David? Now, I read the psalm for you. Did you see the word Messiah anywhere in Psalm 110? No, you didn't, but you might think, but we're reading it in English. Is it there in Hebrew? No, it's not. There, there is no term Messiah in Psalm 110. In fact, there is no concrete evidence that the psalm is about a future ruler of Israel. Nothing in the text that would say that. The psalm could just as easily be about the ruler of Israel at the time that the psalm was written. It could be about a future hope. If looking only at the text, there's no way we could be certain that it was about a Messiah. It was only over time in Israel that this psalm came to be read as a prophecy of that future king who would bring peace and prosperity back to Israel. A king who would be both king and priest. A Messiah. So the idea of Psalm 110 prophesying a coming anointed ruler, a Messiah, that was not anywhere in the Bible. That was part of Jewish tradition in Jesus' day. And yet Jesus assumed that tradition to have been accurate. So accurate, in fact, that he used the very language of the psalm to demonstrate who he was. That he was greater than David. 
that he himself was David's Lord. Remember I said the scriptures are the work of a people, not individual persons. God elected Israel to be his spokespersons. I'm going to read a passage that I hope helps. This is T.F. Torrance's The Mediation of Christ, the book is. You won't want to read it, I don't think, but this is a good quotation from it. Here it is. In his God's desire to reveal himself and make himself knowable to mankind, he selected one small race out of the whole mass of humanity and subjected it to intensive interaction and dialogue with himself in such a way that he might mold and shape this people in the service of his self-revelation. Thus God established a special partnership of covenanted kinship with Israel so that within the intimate structure of family relations he might increasingly imprint himself upon the generations of Israel in such a way that it could become the instrument of his great purpose of revelation. A two-way movement was involved. An adaptation of divine revelation to the human mind and an adaptation of articulate forms of human understanding and language to divine revelation. We only know what we can say. Have you ever been taught a new word that opened your mind to brand new possibilities? Once that happens, your mind expands, right? In some ways, we are shaped by the words we have. So God, if He wants to communicate to us, He has to speak in our language. But what if He doesn't mean what we mean? How does you translate the thoughts of God into human words? How do you do that? If He shows up for Abraham, as we saw that He did, and He says, follow me, what does Abraham think? It's a frustrating thing. If you've ever tried to communicate with someone cross-culturally, you've experienced it, right? So God has to figure out how he's going to communicate his word to a bunch of people who don't speak his language and don't share his values. So how is he going to do that? Well, God's design is to choose Abraham and decide, I'm going to stick with this guy and his kids for the long haul, and I'm going to keep talking to them and living with them and making them live with me. And so God shapes these people. And so the Hebrew language develops in response to God. God says something to the people and they have no word for it. So God gives them a word and then he helps to fill it with meaning. And so they begin to speak God's language over time. And that's what we have through the First Testament. Until finally, when Jesus comes, the people of Israel have the language. And they have the culture. And they have the rituals that will help them to understand what they're looking at. And so after 1,500 years, the time is full. Jesus comes. He lives in their midst. He teaches them. And they're the only ones on earth who can understand. Because they're the only ones on earth who have been shaped by a relationship with this God for 1,500 years. And so when Jesus chooses his apostles to interpret his life for all the rest of us, he chooses 12 Jewish men. Jesus assumes the culture of ancient Israel is being inspired to understand him. And so the idea that this is a Messiah psalm is nowhere in the Bible. You and I won't find that anywhere, but the Jewish tradition said it was messianic, and Jesus says, of course it's right. I built that society. I built that culture. I invented that language. They got the right words. This is my people. 
to read and interpret the Christian scriptures with Jesus, we need to trust the prophets and we need to trust the culture of Israel. I think the only place we doubt their culture of ancient Israel is in those areas that Jesus himself questions it. So in this passage he says, you're right that this is messianic, but you're wrong that the Messiah is simply a son of David, and let me explain to you why. And he does that with, you've heard it said, love your um, eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth, but I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. This is Jesus. So Jesus can question that culture, we can't. Where Jesus questions it, we follow Jesus. Where Jesus doesn't, we follow the culture he invented. When we come to this text, we recognize that we actually come to the written compendium of all that's left of the nation of Israel. That God founded, that God saved, that God invented, that God judged, that God provided language and forms of living to help be better understanding for Him. We come to their book. That's what the First Testament is. That's what your Old Testament is. It's what your first 39 books are. The culture, the patterns, the life, the language of Israel has been preserved. And then the New Testament also preserves the beliefs of the people of Jesus' day. You can find it in all the Gospels. You can find it in Paul. So it's been preserved for you. Not only that, there are historical resources that talk about the culture of Judaism in Jesus' day. Josephus is there and other Roman historians. There's tons of stuff. So we will, to read with Jesus, assume first the prophets are truthful. If they say David wrote it, that's where we start. The second thing we have to assume is that the culture of Israel is the appropriate lens through which to understand it. What we care is, how did the Jewish people read this? How would they have heard Jesus' words? It's a fundamental question. And most of the time it's right there in your Bible. If you ask the question, you'll see it. Other times, you'll have to do a little bit of research or look up the passages in the Old Testament that Jesus is quoting from, things like that. You don't have to be a super scholar, but you have to ask the right questions. Right? Last week, we said, when we make a decision in this world, there are two questions we ask. What has God said, and how will this affect my neighbor? First two questions we ask. The rest follow after that. When we're reading the Scriptures, two questions we ask. What have the prophets and apostles said, and what did the Jewish people believe? First two questions of reading the scriptures. You've got the tools. You've got a Bible. You've got resources. He'll lead you too.